bringing you the stories behind the standards. This is the BSI Education Podcast with Matthew Childs, Alan Sellers, and Cindy Parokil. Today's episode is on the standard ISO IEC 27001 Information Security Management. Hello, my name is Matthew Childs, and I'm with Alan Sellers. Hello, Matthew. And I'm also with Cindy Parakil. Hi, Matthew. Now, the aim of this podcast is to bring you the stories behind the standards. Today's episode is the latest of our standards in the spotlight. This time, we're looking at the standard ISO IEC 27001, Information Security Management. Now, it's never been more important for organisations to protect their information. Cyber attacks have become more prevalent and sophisticated. Supply chains are more complex. And the amount of information handled by organisations continues to increase. In 2020, the UK government's Cybersecurity Breaches Survey found that 46% of businesses had suffered cybersecurity breaches or attacks in the previous 12 months. More positively, it also found that businesses have become more resilient to breaches and attacks over time. They are less likely to report negative outcomes from breaches and more likely to make a faster recovery. However, breaches that do result in negative outcomes still incur substantial costs. Among the 46% of businesses that identified breaches or attacks, 19% had lost money or data. Now, Alan, Cindy, I suppose this increase in cyber attacks is not altogether surprising as we move more and more of our lives online. I think of my own internet banking usage, for example. I take it you both use internet banking? Yeah, I use internet banking. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't these days? Exactly. I can't remember the last time I went into a branch. Well, cast your mind back then to 2007. What do you think was the percentage of people who are using some form of internet banking? Say around, I don't know, 20%. Oh, I was going to say 20%, yeah. Well, it was actually 30%. Okay. And then what about what about in 2020 then? What do you think the percentage was of internet banking use in 2020? Well, I guess towards the end of the year, it would have been very large yeah. given, given the circumstances. So I reckon about, what, uh, 90%? Yeah, around about no, that. Not, not quite that high, 80% though, which I think is a really pretty high figure. That's a result of steady year-on-year growth since 2007. What about online shopping then? What percentage of retail sales do you think were made online, this time in 2006? I'd say similar to the internet banking figure, maybe around 20%. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think, did Amazon exist back then? I, I reckon oh, about, yeah, 10% maybe. No, not even that high, 2.7%. Is that it? Of, of, wow. Yeah, 2.7%. And again, what about in 2020? What had, what had it grown to by then? Well, with this pandemic, I'm sure it skyrocketed. Uh, maybe, I don't know, around 70%. Oh, I think I'm going to have to go 71. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 80%, 80%. And although last year saw the biggest jump in online shopping, for obviously mm-hmm. for obvious reasons, you say because of the pandemic, there has been, again, year-on-year growth since 2006. Now, 27001 is a popular and high-profile standard. In terms of downloads from British Standards Online, which is BSI's own online database, in 2020, it was the fourth most downloaded, behind 9001, 45,001, and 14,001. But in terms of individual sales, it was the biggest seller. And across the world, some 12,000 organizations have been certified against the standard. 
Now, we're looking at 27,001 with the help of two guests, Steve Watkins and Bridget Kenyon. Both Bridget and Steve are information security experts and standards makers, members of the BSI committee IST33, which has responsibility for information security, cybersecurity, and privacy protection standards. Now, Alan and I spoke to them a few days ago, and as you'll hear, they take us inside 27001, tell us about its unique characteristics, why the standard matters, and how an organisation can use it for their own unique circumstances. They also share their general insights and experiences about the art of standards making. And we also find out what 27001 has to do with baking a lemon meringue pie. (laughs) Now, I really enjoyed the conversation with Steve and Bridget. And what was interesting for me was the way the structure of the standard seems to be just as important as what the standard says. And the standard doesn't say just what is required. It does that, but it also gives you suggestions on how to do it. I found this quite unique, but I'm sure there are other standards out there that do that. Perhaps we'll cover them in due time as well, Matthew. That's a really interesting point, Alan. Um, What stood out to me was that this standard really enables companies to balance different needs. So the need for confidentiality in data in line with different regulations with the need to be able to access data and use it appropriately to make informed business decisions. Well, I certainly experienced that this morning. It's certainly uh, BSI was keeping my information confidential because <laughs> it was completely locking me out of my files. So <laughs> I certainly couldn't access it there. Before we move on, though, Matthew, we can't let the comment go about lemon meringue pie. Because when I think of cake, do you know what I think of? Tea. Oh, I know where you're going here. We should probably explain that in the last episode, we went from discussing the total perspective vortex from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy to Arthur Dent and tea making, and whether it's milk in first or second, uh, it's first, by the way, and then to Hanforth Parish Council, all in the space of about three minutes. I think the general gist, though, is that we learn that Alan doesn't make his tea proper. (laughs) Well, I beg to differ, my friend. I've dusted off my copy of BS6008 Method for Preparation of a Liquor of Tea for Use in Sensory Tests and enjoyed a standard cup of tea. Alan, you're such a romantic. You're going to read out actual passages from an actual standard. I am. You, of course, already know I favour following Clause 7.2.2, Preparation with Milk. But I do, however, deviate from the instruction to pour tea into the bowl after the milk in order to avoid scalding the milk, because, as the standard states, unless this procedure is contrary to the normal practice in the organisation concerned, which, from my observation, I believe it is. The standard, though, does offer one last word of caution on this deviation. If the milk is added afterwards, experience has shown that the best results are obtained when the temperature of the tea is in the range 65 to 80 degrees Celsius when the milk is added. You can you can read out from the standard. You're still wrong. It is still milk in first. Now, of but course, it's, it's it, accepted. <laughs> look, if the listeners can bear any more of this, there are other issues to consider here. You know, milk substitute rather than milk. Does that make a difference? Tea bags or tea leaves? In fact, I don't know if either of you saw. There was an article in the Guardian newspaper last week by Fiona Beckett, who is the wine expert of the Guardian. Well. 
Her article includes a finding from a survey that the tea advisory panel did, which found that only 4% of us in the UK use tea leaves now. Guys, sorry to interrupt your detailed tea versus standard dialogue, but being a coffee lover, did you guys know Austria is widely known for its coffee culture? In fact, it's such an integral part of Austria's culture that UNESCO has added it to their list of intangible cultural heritage. Um, there's a quote actually, which goes, coffee houses are places where time and space are consumed, but only the coffee is found on the bill. I love that quote. <laughs> it's really true. Um, one can really spend hours in a cafe. Um, there's such a unique atmosphere, especially in the traditional ones. Very elegant structures with high ceilings, smell of enticing strudels and cakes, the rustle of newspaper and the general chatter. It's, it's really a sight. Um, and being in Vienna, I really miss not being able to stroll into a cafe, not to imagine how devastated the regular guests must be. But back to um, the exquisite coffee, I wonder what the equivalent ISO 6681 standard for making a standard cup of coffee says. Cindy, Cindy, coffee, <laughs> that's a whole new nerdy level you take us into there, you know, stovetop versus espresso maker oh, versus yes. French press versus filter versus aeropress versus percolator. <laughs> and that's even before we get to the coffee beans. Now, I think maybe for now we should leave coffee houses and uh, high tea and uh, get back to IT and ISO 27001. <laughs> oh, no. I love it. <laughs> you lucky people. But before that, Alan, have you got a standards desk of news for us, please? I sure do. The headlines this week making sure voltage cables can take the strain and taking the temperature of nuclear power plants. Medium voltage cables, that's cables that carry between 1,000 and 100,000 volts, are used as part of the electrical grid. And the third edition of IEC 60287-1-1 electric cables has just opened for public comment. The standard provides the calculations needed to make sure that cables we all rely on for our electricity supply are properly rated for the load they will carry. With demand on the grid set to rise as we start plugging in all those electric vehicles, standards such as this one are going to become ever more important. So next time you see those electrical cables in a hole in the street, spare a thought for the standards makers behind IEC 60287-1-1. So, from medium voltage cables to power plants. Way back in episode 1 of the podcast, we talked to Kat Rosier and Navdeep Mihai, who both work in the nuclear power industry. Now, I'm no expert on nuclear power, but I think that one very important aim is to make sure things don't get too hot. Well, the second edition of IEC 62397 is now out for public consultation. This standard describes the requirements for resistance temperature detectors suitable for nuclear power plant services. I'm glad to say that the standard makes the point that the design and structure of the temperature detector should consider the environmental conditions in which the detector is being used under normal operating and under accident conditions. Back to you, Matthew. 
Thank you, Alan. And I'm glad you mentioned Navdeep and Kat there way back in episode one. If you want to discover how being a standards maker can help your career, then do please check out our interview with uh, with our interviews with Navdeep and Kat. They're well worth listening to. Now, as always, you can find links to the Standards Desk of News stories in the episode notes. Here's me with a quick reminder that for more information on BSI Education, go to bsigroup.com forward slash education. This link and others on the themes raised in this episode can be found in the episode notes. Do please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts and share us on social media using the hashtag BSIEdPod. And if you have any comments or questions about this episode or ideas for future episodes, including any standard you'd like us to shine a spotlight on, then do please get in touch at education at bsigroup.com. We really welcome your feedback. Now, as I mentioned earlier, our guests today are Steve Watkins and Bridget Kenyon. Steve is a director at GRC International Group PLC, the parent company of IT Governance. He's a member of ISO IEC JTC1 Subcommittee 27, the International Technical Committee responsible for the ISO 27000 family of standards, and he's chair of the BSI Committee IST33, responsible for contributions to 27001, 27002, and related information security, cybersecurity, and privacy protection standards. Bridget is a Chief Information Security Officer at Tales Digital Identity and Security. Her experience in information security started in 2000, and she's been contributing to international standards development since 2006. An author of three books on information security, like Steve, she's also a member of IST33. Before we hear our conversation with Steve and Bridget, grab a piece of lemon meringue pie or your cake of choice and listen to this quick guide to 27001. ISO IEC 27001, Information Security Management, is an international standard designed to help organizations keep confidential information safe. Using this standard enables organizations of any kind to manage the security of assets, such as financial information, intellectual property, employee details, or information entrusted by third parties. First published in 2005, the origins of ISO IEC 27001 can be traced back to the British standard BS7799 published in 1995. 27001 is now the mainstay of the ISO IEC 27000 family, a series of mutually supporting standards that can be combined to provide a globally recognized framework for best practice information security management. Along with other management system standards such as ISO 9001 and 14001, 27001 is one of the most widely downloaded and used standards in the world. So Steve, maybe we could start with this. Why why should people care about the standard? What problem or problems can it solve? You know, I I think we all recognize that IT and technical solutions offer huge opportunities in many situations. So they deliver improvements in efficiency, scalability, economy, etc. The challenge is that at the same time as offering these great advantages, 
for those less law-abiding amongst us, it provides the same opportunities and benefits for them to wreak havoc um, and cause problems. Uh, So cyberspace, technical solutions, technology, etc., loads of positives, but there's these negatives, and organisations embracing the positives have to manage the negatives. Um, One solution to address that sort of challenge or balance those if you want for the better is to define and establish a set of roles responsibilities practices arrangements or or the management if you want of the issues associated with information security and embracing technology Um, and that's that's kind of what this standard does it sets out the requirements for managing information security, not just for today, but making sure it evolves over time to accommodate a changing environment uh, for the future and making sure that w- what the organisation's putting in place or has in place is being effective and doing the job you want it to. So th- that's part of the value of this standard. Um, and I'm sure we'll touch on a number of other areas going forwards. The one thing I would want to get in right at the outset is that there's a huge misunderstanding around 27,001. And it's probably something to do with the title, Information Security Management Systems. There's there's this perception from many that it's all to do with locking things up and keeping information confidential, which, of course, is a huge part of it. But actually, that's relatively easy to manage. So if you give me some information, you say, Steve, could you, could you keep that confidential for us? I'll, yeah, sure. I'll write it to a USB stick. And before everyone panics, I'm not going to stop there. I'll write it to a USB stick. I'll encrypt the USB stick. I'll put that USB stick in a safe. I'm going to weld the safe shut. I'm going to emboss it in concrete, totally encased in concrete, bury it at the bottom of the sea, and then do my damnedest to forget where it is. That's confidential because no one's getting to it. The problem is it's no good to anyone either because we can't reference it. We can't use it. And, And that's really one of the challenges and one of the benefits of using uh, standard like ISO 27001. It enables you to balance the need for confidentiality, which I'm sure we're all aware of a whole raft of scenarios where that's really important, with the need to be able to access the information and use it appropriately. The, the third attribute that is encompassed in this phrase, information security, is about the accuracy and the completeness of the information. And when you think about what information is used for informing decisions, um, I think that those decision makers have got a better chance, whoever we are in whatever walk of life, uh, decision makers have got a better chance of making the right decision if that information is complete and accurate. And that's the that attribute is probably the one that's, in my experience, least understood and uh, hardest to manage effectively. Steve, that's a really uh, helpful summary of the standard there. And I, you're right, I do, we do want to come back and sort of delve it a bit more into, into the standard itself. Uh, but what we ask of all of our, our guests uh, on the podcast is about their standards journeys. And I'm really, we're really keen to, to understand your standards journeys too. So maybe starting with you, Bridget, um, how long have you been a standards maker and what's, your been, what's your, been your standards journey to this point? It all started back in 2006, um, I was working as a head of information security in uh, University of Warwick. And I thought, well, it would be a rather good idea if I actually did some training because uh, information security was a relatively new field. And while I'd worked in the area, I hadn't got very much in the terms of formal information security qualifications, if you like. And 
I was the first in post, so I was making it up as I went along. And I thought, well, okay, what am I going to use as my yardstick? Well, how am I going to know what good enough looks like? And looking around, I discovered 27,001. And it looked to me like a great way of, of helping me identify what I needed to do to achieve an appropriate level of due diligence. So I went on a training course and I learned about 27,001. And I met uh, the guy who was running the course was involved in standards development. That was Dick Price. Um, and he mentioned that there were these opportunities around developing standards, especially in the area of information security uh, management systems. And I kind of sat on the idea for a year or two and I kind of made put out some feelers. And then eventually I started, uh, I got invited to join uh, the committee, subcommittee. Uh, and um, yeah, it really kind of snowballed from there. I, I sat in a few sessions thinking, oh my giddy aunt, what are all these complicated terms? And I'm not talking about information security terms. Oh no. I'm talking about the um, standards development process terms. You know, somebody says, it's, oh, it's at this. And I'm thinking, what? You know, like some somewhere near Hades. No, <laughs> no draft international standard. Uh, and yeah, so it took a, a good few meetings for me to feel confident, confident enough to not to just sort of sit there and go, hmm, a lot. But it all kind of seeped in over the following years or so. And once you get the hang of it, because, I mean, okay, there's a lot of structure there, but it doesn't tend to change very frequently. So once you get your head around how the standards development process works and how ISO 27001 works in itself, you can start to really give back. Because I got a lot out of 27001 and I wanted to see it carrying on in a really good direction. And this was a wonderful, wonderful opportunity to do so. Obviously, I, once I was talking about 27,001, those meetings were also talking about 27,002, 3, 4, and so forth. There's an entire family of interrelated standards. And I ended up editing uh, 27,013, which is um, how to make um, information security and um, service management uh, work together because they... Uh, they're a bit like a cat and a dog. If, if you bring them up together, they're okay. But if you just kind of introduce them both fully fledged and snarling, it doesn't end very well. <laughs> so we, have, we have to standard about how to make them make friends, uh, create a, an integrated management system. Words are very important. Integrated. It took three meetings to come up with that word. But yeah, so I've been doing that sort of thing ever since. And I, I ran the uh, committee for a short while in the uh, for the for BSI uh, on the uh, working group relating to twenty seven thousand and one and its friends. I tend to use the phrase Garfield and friends in my head when I say twenty seven thousand and one and friends, but you get the idea. It's... I think the idea of standards, standards as uh, as animals or even family dynasties, <laughs> I think that's something we could definitely play with, Alan. Steve, how about, so. um, <laughs> how about how about your journey? Did you did you ignore standards for for a year or so as Bridget did to begin with, and then finally come around? How, how, what's your standards you know, journey? <laughs> um, first off, my involvement with standards was as a user when not long after further education, um, but. I won't put a year on that. It's far too long ago. Uh, working in, in quality management systems and what's now ISO 9001. If I've mentioned the fact that at the time it was BS 5750, people might have a clue how far back it was. Um, then I got into other management systems and eventually I got involved with information security. I joined a, an organization that 
identified it was a consultancy practice and it identified that information was one of its key assets and how would it work with others and wanted to protect that information and our our chief exec at that organization had the foresight to look around and identify a standard at the time which was the forerunner of ISO 27001 standard called BS 7799 um we were we therefore were one of the uh keeping the animal theme up just for a minute we were a <laughs> guinea pig in adopting 7799 and going through certification and creating an accredited certification scheme which i was involved in as being the quality manager for this organization as a result of that i joined the user group which uh, a guy called professor edward humphreys um initiated uh, he he was basically recognized as being the, the father of iso 27001 help with by others i know um i joined the standards committee in due course as a result of being on the user group i guess that was probably the very late 90s maybe early noughties not sure um fast forward a bit um as a result of all of this and getting involved in standards uh the the chief exec at the organization i mentioned a minute ago and i wrote um we authored a book uh snappily called it governance an international guide to data security and iso 27001 slash 27002 who come up with that as a title who knows i mean you know no one's going to google that are they um <laughs> they might do now <laughs> they, hey i can hope <laughs> um but off the back of the book the, we we and this is from you know being involved with standards off the back of the book we got some inquiries and we thought you know what the, there's a business here. So we started a business um, and that business is now listed on the AIM market in London. Um, and throughout, uh, I've, I've always wanted to learn more and working on the standards committee uh, and with others on the standards committee uh, in that environment. There's so much expertise and, and just by sitting in the room, as much as, as Bridget's already implied, the terminology and some of the processes are somewhat impenetrable. Just by, you can sit in a committee meeting for a couple of hours and think, I didn't get a lot of that. But those couple of little snippets you got can be so valuable and give you such insight. I, I just, I, I find it, there's a constantly learning. It's always rewarding. Um, yeah, and now I'm, I'm, from a standards angle, I've been massively fortunate insofar as I'm now chair of IST33, which is the UK National Standards Body Committee responsible for information security, cybersecurity and privacy protection. And it mirrors the ISO committee responsible for ISO 27001 and many other standards. But hey, I, uh, I took that. I took that rollover from Professor Edward Humphreys, who I mentioned earlier, and uh, I kind of liken it to David Moyes trying to take over the manager role at Old Trafford, but I think I've had slightly better longevity than David Moyes did. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> we've had, we've had, so far, we've had uh, we've had family dynasties, we've had uh, animals, and now we've got football analogies. This is this is fantastic <laughs> stuff, uh, Steve. I'm glad you mentioned uh, IST33. I was going to I was going to ask you. You both mentioned the committee, and you, you've you've mentioned that now that uh, IST33 is where sort of 27,001 and other standards sit. Um, just before we move on to the standard itself, um, Alan and I always take this opportunity, we talk to standards makers, is to, is to just give us a flavour of what it actually means to sit round a committee table or virtually now, as obviously the case, obviously we're all working online. But in terms of your roles then, Steve, you mentioned being a chair. We'd love to know what that means when you're sort of, you know, is it, is it just chairing the discussion? And certainly Bridget, from your side, you know, what, what, 
what sort of takes place within the committee room when you're when you're debating uh, the issues around twenty seven thousand and one? Maybe Bridget, you want to have a go at that first? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, in terms of the committee meetings, there's two really two sorts of committee meetings. Uh, there's the sorts that happen uh, within BSI, so they're discussions within the UK national body. And then there are discussions which are between um, international um, members uh, within the ISO context. So you've got your BSI meetings, which are local, and you've got your ISO meetings, which are global. And in the global meetings, um, it's quite interesting because you it's very structured. There's an order to everything. There's um, a person who's running the meeting, and everybody has to basically stick their hand up to be heard. Um, and you inexorably work your way through every last detail. If you're not detail-oriented, it's a very challenging environment to work in because you can spend a good 15 minutes arguing about whether something should be a the or an an or in the singular or in the plural. But, but in the end, the purpose is to get something out that isn't just great for a native English speaker. It's also got to be great for um, somebody who isn't a native English speaker and it's also got to be capable of being translated at the very least into French because the documents are published in English and French, the official ones. The, they are also obviously translated into multiple other languages. So, for example, we had a, a very long conversation at one, one occasion um, on the use of the word um, awareness policy, what phrase, awareness policy, or, info, or the phrase information security policies, plural, because in some cultures and in some languages there is no such thing as multiple information security policies an organization has one information security policy which contains um, segments on say uh, awareness or access control and yet in in english and in a lot in a, a number of other um, languages the idea of having a, an information security policy on awareness and a separate information security policy on access control is perfectly acceptable so it's it's detailed and everybody is very willing to listen to each other it's a very i think the word civilized is a good word environment people listen people can try and come up with solutions and in a way one of the purposes of the person running the session is to ensure that this drive to find the best solution doesn't completely um, uh, overwhelm the the purpose of the meeting itself so if you're sitting there and you've got a suggestion or a a, a comment um, change, changes to standards occur via comments, dispositions of comments and, and lists of comments from national bodies and from experts. And those, those become your, your magic big list that you go through in the meeting. And the purpose of the meeting is to, res is to come to an agreement on how these comments should be uh, treated, whether they should be rejected or incorporated into the document. If you get too keen on fixing every comment, then you end up not finishing the meeting. And so there's the, the, one of the roles of the person running the meeting, I've done so on many occasions, is to try and keep focus on, yes, we do want the perfect phrase here, but we do actually have another. It can be 450 comments for a single standard. So it, you have to be very um, structured and you have to try and see patterns as well. If you can get an agreement on a concept, you can maybe resolve 50 comments because they are all about that same concept. So it's very collaborative. It's focused on consensus building. And it's, it requires the people there to be very, very um, conscious in the moment. 
but also to be thinking about how something will come across to the um, casual reader. Steve, you must have a, a chair's perspective on that too, sort of chairing IST33. Sure. I, I, I think with IST33 in particular, we're, we're hugely fortunate because we are so active in the international community for, for our area, our discipline, if you want. Um, the uh, For me, as, as proceduralized as it is, um, it's about people and it's making sure that my role is about people. And it's making sure that individuals get their voice heard. Some are, are masters of um, prose and English and, and, and indeed the processes we need to observe and, and adhere to. But just because there'll be one or two people contributing and just because they're not necessarily as up to speed on those things, they're, the points they're putting forward can be at least as valuable, if not on occasion more valuable than those that are masters of the processes, etc. And so it's making sure that just because a, a comment or an observation hasn't necessarily followed the requirements, it, it should certainly at a national level get due consideration so that the national, our UK contribution to the international considerations is as informed and developed and advanced and as positive and beneficial as it can be. Before I ask you about, about the standard itself, I just got a, something we, Alan and, and I have talked about on the podcast uh, in the past. Uh, you both beautifully described there the experience of actually making a standard and what really happens. And I, it's constantly fascinating to me that you secure agreement at all. There are literally <laughs> thousands of experts working around the world through their own national standards bodies and then coming together at European and international level. And I think I pay tribute to you both, actually, that you do get agreement. You I, get agreement <laughs> or, or lack of disagreement. Uh, yeah. what, what good looks like for whatever the standard is. And I think it's incredible. It's a miracle almost that, <laughs> that this, the show stays on the road. So I think you described that beautifully. But um, Take us inside the standard then, uh, Bridget. You know, what are the key features of ISO 27001? Okay, well, 27001 um, consists of two parts. Uh, the first part is what you might describe as the, uh, the normative part of the standard. Yes, I'm starting to use more terminology. Basically, it's the bit you get certified against. It's the bit that contains all of the shall statements. Uh, in fact, if you go through 27001, the main part, you'll notice that Every single sentence contains the word shall. And yes, I did go and check once. Um, so the other half, and I, I'm, I'm calling it half, but in fact, it's far more pages than the main part of the standard, is what's known as Annex A. If you deal with anyone that's um, ever worked with 27001, they will, they will shudder quietly when you say Annex A, for it is very, very, very long. It contains a... Um, list of security, of specific security measures, they're known as controls, that you might wish to apply. And they are, and I quote, informative. They are not compulsory, and you do not get audited against them. You get audited against the main bit of the standard. 27001 is really unusual in that respect. Um, the other management system standards do not have this Annex A, uh, nor have they ever had it. 27001 is, because it's come from BS7799, has a different history and has brought this concept of a list of controls and also this thing called the statement of applicability. Another thing that will usually make people go, aha, when they've been doing this for a while. 
your statement of applicability is it's kind of a sensible thing but anyway I'll, I'll come to that in a second so we've done the first part of the standard we've said okay that's a whole load of requirements it's a whole load of mandatory statements they've all got shells we've got the other bit which is your grab bag honestly grab bag of um, security measures what's in your main bit what's what have you actually got to do and this is where it gets quite disappointing uh, because it's only about 10 pages long and the bits that are compulsory are only um, clauses four through ten and people think well that's not very much that should be really straightforward <laughs> um, imagine if you will a recipe um, a recipe for something delicious now for me something delicious means lemon meringue pie and imagine that instead of having the full recipe you have the list of ingredients without quantities and you have a photo of a lemon meringue pie a bit like um the technical challenge in bake-off <laughs> yes. so you find yourself thinking goodness i actually have to know what i'm doing to start with this because you, you don't have a, a complete beginner to cooking trying to do the technical challenge in bake-off and getting very far so there is an assumption of a considerable amount of basic understanding of security and of how things should be done in practice because 27001 describes says things like uh, the organization shall establish implement maintain and continually improve an information security management system in accordance with the requirements of this international standard and that doesn't tell you how to do it but that is actually one of the statements you get audited against um, equally uh, the top management shall promote in continual improvement uh, top management shall establish an information security policy that um, includes a commitment to satisfy applicable requirements related to information security. You see, there's not that detail in there. This is a set of criteria, and you can use it to determine whether you've succeeded or not. It's not a, a recipe with all the instructions. And I think that's one of the things that shocks people. It does have a few specific um, things in it, like, as I said, this statement of applicability. That's that's kind of one of my favourite bits, to be honest, because it also creates a load of um, uh, active discussion, which I think we may just we may cover a bit later on in this podcast. But it it says so again. The standard says you've got to do a risk assessment. Okay, right? How doesn't tell you, but it does say that when you've done your risk assessment, you need to make a list of all the measures you've intended to apply, and then you have to sit down and you have to do a lookup basically all the things you've decided to do write them down and compare them to what's in annex a if it's in annex a okay you've, you know that you've chosen something that's in annex a great and you know why you've chosen it because you had a risk assessment if it's not if you chose something that's not in annex a cool you, you kind of bonus item if you don't have if you if you go through all your list and there's still stuff in annex a that you haven't done you just have to explain why you're not doing it. So your statement of applicability is, this is what I'm doing. This is how it relates to Annex A. And just in case I missed something, I've had a look through the rest of Annex A, and this is why it's not relevant to me. And that is an entirely different concept from what, say, the quality standards and environmental standards do, even though they are 98% the same text as 27001. Bridget, is this, is this the only management system standard that does this? Um, yeah, as far as I'm aware, it's the only management system standard that has a statement of applicability and has this giant annex. Ever wondered about why certain standards are made? 
or who gets to make them, why standards are numbered, and who gets to choose the numbers. Or maybe you have a burning question about standards related to your job or the sector in which you work. Well, this is your chance to ask the BSI Education Podcast, and we'll get your questions answered. All you need to do is record your question via audio message and send it to education at bsigroup.com. We'll put the best ones to a panel of experts in a future episode, so stay tuned. I was just wondering, what are the challenges with this particular standard? We talked about its development, and it's been fascinating to hear about all of that. But usually, with with standards, there are particular areas that are particularly challenging. So, um, Bridget, I, I don't know if you want to comment on that. One of the really challenging bits, I, I think I mentioned a little while ago, is the fact that there is this annex A because it is quite unique to twenty seven thousand and one, and people. When they first approach the standard, they'll probably print it out or they'll flick through it online. And, you know, size for size, the majority of the document is a whole load of um, security measures. And the number of um, organizations and individuals I've seen who have gone almost magnetized to that last big chunk of the document and started treating it like a set of mandatory requirements, um, it it is quite... um, quite common in fact worryingly common that, that that people should do this i mean there is an approach that says okay people sat in a room for a very long time and tried to make a nice list of, of security measures hey maybe we can use this as our our, our def- definite defined definitive list of everything we need to do but in fact the purpose of this is to is to engage the mind after you've done a risk assessment because if you create, if you just use this giant list of security controls, how does that relate to your risk profile? How does it relate to what you need to protect and how much risk you're comfortable with? It, a, a one-size-fits-all approach to security is going to be very expensive. And that's the problem that I have seen, again, when people have tried this approach. Um, well, in fact, I've, I had a, an occasion where I was invited in to talk to a colleague whose organization was taking that approach. And he was in the IT department and he said to me, I, I've got this, this list of requirements. No, they're not requirements. Okay, fair enough. He said, I've got this list of security controls and I've made this spreadsheet. I've put all the controls in and I've said which departments should do the controls, but they won't do it. Uh, firstly, that brings up another problem. You need top management support on this. It is not something that just magically happens because somebody switches on a computer or configures something differently. It's about people, processes, and technology, with the people first, processes second, technology third. If you don't have top management commitment, you're not getting there. But worse still, he was sitting there trying to use every single control as if they were equally important to his organization. And he had no idea why each control would, would be necessary, or even if it were necessary, which is where you start with the main section, ironically, the smaller part of the document, and then you look at the controls. And also the there's a lot of interpretation necessary in the controls themselves. And that's where you realize that this Annex A, it's actually kind of an abridged version of another standard. So to, that's 27,002. You've just mentioned that you just highlighted there, well, sorry, started to talk about how organizations use it. And I just, if you think during, during lockdown, uh, lots of local businesses 
have decided that in order to survive, obviously they, they can't have footfall, they can't have people walking through their shop, and many have moved online very quickly where they may not have been planning planning to do so. Um, so just from a really practical perspective, I am a, you know, I'm an SME, employ 15, 20 people. I've gone online for the first time. I've heard about this thing called cybersecurity. I'm collecting data now on customers that I wasn't collecting before. How would I, as, a, as an SME, uh, uh, collecting data for the first time, how would I use 27,001? What would, how would I consume the standard, I suppose, is what I'm saying? And then, and then how would I start to change my practices as a result of reading it? I think with a, with a small business, I've seen, I've seen a business can, um, composed of, of three people um, actually certified to 27,001. So that there's, there is an assumption sometimes that it, it works better for large organizations. But in fact, the smaller you are, the simpler you are, and therefore the easier you are. It is for you to, to think about some of these concepts because you don't have to try and get time in someone's diary three months in advance. It's, I think the best way to do it is, as I said, start with the, the first chunk of the document, the, the main part of the document, and think about what your processes are and who is accountable for stuff, especially if you've just gone online. You are now you've entered into arrangements, most likely with some third parties who are providing you with products and services. What security are you expecting from them? What have they committed to provide you and what are they assuming you will do? From the chair's perspective, you must you, obviously when you're chairing a committee on this, the consideration about applicability for any sort of organisation is that that must be pretty high up on your you, on the agenda. You know, I, I I think for all of us in the standards community, the the flexibility and scalability of standards is is massively important. Um, the and, and applicability of the standards, yeah, sure. Um, echoing some of what Bridget just said. I, I've personally helped an organization of one person. One person? Why on earth would he want to? In fact, that's what I asked him when he first phoned up was, are you mad? Do you really want to? And when he'd convinced me it was necessary, we did it and it was scalable. It works. Um, I think the, the, the question you asked a, a moment or two ago was what are, the, what are some of the challenges? I think when people or if a small organization picks it up, what are the pitfalls if you want? I think when they read it, they can get obsessed with the words in the standard and it's really making the standard work for them it is the solution. A lot of people, a lot of projects, and I mean not just for the guy who, who decided he wanted certification for his own business that was him and him alone, but all the way through to, I've, I've been fortunate enough to oversee a, a huge project for a multinational it was a, a million dollar consultancy engagement but from both extremes the obsession with the establishing and implementing an information security management system that meets the requirements of the standard detracts from the value the organization derives from it in due course because they they're so focused on the let's design it and let's put it in place now they forget they've got to maintain it and it's mm. the maintenance that's the bit that um, I can can derail an information security management system going forwards. Um, but also, if you get it right, make sure that it's a sustainable solution that really adds benefit. Um, I would say that, wouldn't I? I'm in standards. I'm a, a chair of the committee. But it really does add real, real tangible benefits to an organization if you get it right. Well, I suppose but, what you're saying is there, aren't you? You, you you've talked there about the, there are obviously requirements in a document, but what you're describing there, Steve, is uh, changing attitudes and behaviours and practices generally. Yep. Would that yep. be right? Yep, definitely. 
and and one of the, one of the key things, and again, echoing what Bridget's already said, one of the key aspects of this of twenty seven thousand and one is that it's risk based, and it's the information security, risk assessment, and risk management aspects of it. The number of projects I've seen where an organisation calls us and we go in, and they've got so bogged down in doing an information security risk assessment, they lose sight of the goal. And initially, the goal for that part of the project is to inform the the blender controls they require to safeguard confidentiality, integrity, and availability going forwards. But they get so bogged down in conducting an information security risk assessment for the sake of meeting that clause of the standard that they never actually finish it. And that, that just skews the whole thing. You've you've shared some stories along the way, both of you, with with anecdotes about how companies and organisations have have been using this standard. But how successful has it been so far? Some organisations use it internally for their own benefit without going for certification. Um, Many organisations do go for certification. It's consistently, the number of organisations certified has consistently been growing year on year by approximately 20%. Um, the, the numbers aren't quite as huge as we might like them to be compared to, say, a standard like ISO 9001, but it's growing. Um, the the interest, I think, is is only going to continue growing. There's a, We're talking about ISO 27001 as an information security management system standard, but there's other standards that complement it. Bridget's referenced some. There's a hot topic of the last couple of years has been privacy, and there's a privacy bolt on to ISO 27001, which confusingly is called ISO or referenced ISO 27701. So that's <laughs> a specification for a privacy information management system that is literally a bolt on to 27001. So you can't do the PIMS, the Privacy Information Management System 27701, without having done, or at least apply at the same time, 27001. Um, the... The interest in that, especially in and around Europe and, of course, in the UK since Brexit, uh, related to GDPR and the UK Data Protection Act, um, it is huge. You've just got to look at the, the number of accredited certification bodies is one indicator. The number of accredited certification bodies on the UCAS website interested in 27,001 continues to grow. Um, my rather... Uh, basic reading of that is they wouldn't be adding ISO 27001 accreditation to their uh, offerings if they didn't think there was going to be a market in it for them. Um, So yeah, uh, success. There's a number of organisations I know where they've avoided incidents that they would have otherwise fallen foul to because they've put an information security management system in place. Equally importantly, when they have had incidents, because you're not, there's no guarantee that you're never going to have an incident. When they do have incidents, they're much better prepared to react to them, um, react in a timely manner, and they know what to do with regards to who to tell, how to manage communications, whether they should turn the machine off, leave a machine on, isolate it, not isolate it. Um, tell clients, etc. They they're all prepared for that because they've gone through this process of identifying this information security that is confidentiality, integrity, and availability. And yeah, I'll say it again: um, related risks and putting measures in place to to manage what might go wrong if it goes wrong. I tell you one thing though: it's um, twenty seven thousand and one. In terms of its success, it actually can enable other 
compliance to be a lot more straightforward. Um, I've seen it used to be uh, basically in the UK, there's, if you're handling uh, patient data, especially patient data that is identifiable, um, you have to comply with something called the Information Governance Toolkit, which is basically another uh, set of requirements. You can, it, 27,001, I have seen that used as a method as a structure within which to achieve and maintain compliance with this other standard. Yep. Equally, 20, um, GDPR, it says there's sections in it that says you could you should protect personal data adequately. How do you define adequately? Well, hey, there's, an, there's a standard for it. 27,001 effectively describes what due diligence looks like, what good enough looks like, when you can stop. It's one of the things with securities, when do I stop? When have I gone too far? When have I done too much security? And 27,001 helps you draw back from that overkill state. I think that's really nice, actually, Bridget, because you're, you're talking there about obviously the relationship there between different management standards or, or, or any standards, really, about mm -hmm. those. Once you start doing something, it, it, it makes it easier to do something else. And Steve, you mentioned about... Um, people and practices and processes so there's a behavioral issue as well so the more you use them and the more you realize how beneficial they are you're more likely to use others aren't you it yeah. sort of becomes self-fulfilling it's not so much that you choose to use one and then you, you choose to use others it is more that some are foisted upon you um, and they don't contain all the help or all the structure that you need to be able to comply so gdpr it, it's even less detailed in terms of what success looks like um, okay, 27,001 doesn't give you a step-by-step -step guide from here to there, but it tells you how to recognize when you've got there and the different uh, components you need to put in place, the people, the processes, the technology. Technology varies. 27,001, main section of it, zero technological content. So as a, as a final thought then, I just wonder what's next for the standard? You know, where, where do we go next with, uh, with ISO 27,001? The purpose of 27001 is to help people manage risk to information and risk to people from information even. Um, one of the things that we're encouraging is people to start using the standard to engage with the standard. So it's very important that if the standard changes, it changes in a very managed way and in a very well signposted way. So I would strongly suspect that we are not going to suddenly see a major change in 27,001. We're trying to keep the people that are using it comfortable and encourage more people to use it. And what people need for this sort of environment is a feeling of, of trust, of, of confidence in the standard. Having said that, we are continuing to look at revisions, to look at improvements, because there is a continuous review cycle. The 27,001 is due for a next review in 2022, um, but that doesn't mean that it gets completely rewritten. These changes to standards are generally very incremental, and the actual change process, if you like, from the point where you start thinking about revising a standard to the point where you release a new version of that standard can be five years in itself so even if we start revising 27001 like right now there's still five years for any uh, you know substantive pub published change to take place all, all i'd need to say is i, th I suspect that there, there's a whole raft of standards out there in the arena of information and cyber security and, and management of those challenges um and as much as 
the standards out there for five years, say, and then it takes a five-year revision cycle. So for most, it would seem to be quite a static set of requirements. Um, the number of other standards around it and developments in those areas means that it does proceed quite rapidly um, and, and things change to meet changing real-world needs. Part of the challenge of the committee, for the committee, is to is to produce a standard that, that remains applicable and offers value over, over an extended period. You have been listening to an episode of the BSI Education Podcast. To find out more, visit bsigroup.com forward slash education. just heard a stripped media production.